This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. Located in Percival, Virginia, Catoctin Creek Distilling Company is the Virginia rye whiskey. From its traditional production methods to the land that infuses every bottle, everything about Catoctin Creek is inspired by the history and craft of Virginia. Founded by Scott and Becky Harris in 2009, Catoctin Creek is proud to be the first legal distillery since Prohibition in Loudoun County. And if you were drinking whiskey in Virginia before Prohibition, you are most certainly drinking rye whiskey, which is what Catoctin Creek is known for. Considered Virginia's most awarded whiskey, Catoctin Creek's flagship product, Roundstone Rye, is a 100% rye single barrel whiskey produced in the tradition of slower distillation in copper pot stills. That process results in a richer flavor, texture, and spice. This whiskey is delicious. So if you're ever in Percival, Virginia, stop in and say hello to Scott and Becky Harris at Catoctin Creek Distilling and tell them that Howard sent you and get some Roundstone Rye. It makes some darn good gin and brandy too, I'm gonna tell you. So just stop in and see them. You'll be very happy you did. And now let's get on with the show. Generalize. There's um, what the Europe, the French say. There's a, a vin de terroir, which is a wine of, of place, and there's a vin d'effort, which is a wine of effort. And we do just terroir. And effort means that you do do a lot of work in the cellar. Um, that's where the effort is. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do that. We don't want to do that. We don't even know how to do that. Um, so. We just find that it, when we get everything right, we bring in balanced grapes and there's not much you need to do at all. You just make sure, uh, again, to use a, the French term, ne pas, don't mess it up. You know, just don't make any mistakes and yeah. let the wine just sort of happen. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello and welcome to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher and I have a special show for you today. One of Virginia's premier wineries, Linden Vineyards is located in the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 60 miles west of Washington, D.C. The entire wine production of 4,000 cases comes exclusively from three distinct vineyard sites. Linden is best known for single vineyard bottlings of Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Bordeaux variety red blends. And those blends, folks, are exquisite, let me tell you. But Linden is best known for its owner and wine grower of his hard gravel vineyard, Jim Law. Jim is the godfather of Virginia winemaking, and I am honored to have had the opportunity to have a conversation with him about Virginia wine and his background. Of all the Virginia winemakers that I've had the opportunity, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with, no one is more focused on his vineyard and his terroir than Jim Law. No one knows it better, I don't think. 
So listen, that's enough out of me. So with no further ado, here's my conversation that I had with Jim Law in the sunroom of Linden Vineyards, nearest tasting room on Hearts Gravel Vineyard. And one, one, one more thing. He was nice enough to let me bring my five-month-old rescue lab slash mastiff slash beagle slash maniac Milton the Wonder Dog do the inter- interview. So he made his presence known, so you'll hear him, you know, doing his thing in the background. And I thank Jim for being as tolerant as he was. So here's my conversation with Jim Law. Let's all raise a glass. All right, I'm here with Jim Law at Linden Vineyards, and I'm here with Milton the Wonder Dog. I hope he behaves himself. And I want to thank you, Jim, for agreeing to be on the show and also for letting me bring my pal Milton along. Sure, you're welcome. We're, we're, we, we like dogs a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, and I especially thank you for having us here during this very weird time we're in. I'm recording this on December 3rd, mm-hmm. and the numbers, the COVID numbers are pretty high, and there have been a lot of more restrictions been put on in Virginia and in Maryland. Yeah, I was going to talk about this later on, but we might as well talk about it now. Sure. You, you know, you've decided to go ahead and close the, the tasting rooms for pretty much... We, we have a sort of a hybrid thing going on. I, um, we, we're not doing anything inside no tastings or anything like that just it's it's uh i just don't feel comfortable that we have the proper ventilation yeah protecting my staff and myself and the customers so um we do have where we're sitting now we call the sun room Mm -hmm. and we open the windows crack the doors turn on fans space heaters have the wood stove going and i feel comfortable enough doing that but we can only handle um a total of 10 people yeah period um, yeah, and normally it would be like if capacity oh, is what I, I don't even know what capacity yeah. is because then we have upstairs seating sure. too that sure. we're not using. But uh, sure. um, so we have to do it reservation only, and it's very limiting. But at least some people can come out and taste the wines and enjoy. But then starting the holidays, I think we'll um, we'll close down at least through January, um, and then reevaluate. Um, it's been very stressful for everybody, so I don't need to tell anybody about how stressful it's been. <laughs> and I'm just, I think we're all ready to just take a break and not worry about it and reorganize and kind of figure out what's next. I'm, I'm thinking of what post-COVID will look like yeah. as far as Linden goes. Mm-hmm. I know there's going to be a huge transition time between now and post-COVID, whatever that means. But... I don't know what's going to happen then, but I do know there will be a post-COVID. And yeah. I know I, so I'm focusing on what Linden will be like after, after that. Well, and again, I don't always like to start off on a, necessarily a down note. I really wanted to focus on you, and which we will do. But one thing, since you talk about post-COVID, uh, with the winemakers I have been speaking with, um, some of them uh, who did work on their outdoor seating as much, what it has done for them is actually given them an opportunity, not one that they necessarily would have wanted to have, but an opportunity to expand their businesses and, their, and the ways that they can deliver their product to, to others. So maybe post-COVID, mm-hmm. it might have a positive effect on how you can service more clients now. 
Yes, actually, in a way, I'll contradict that okay. for Linden in that we're not looking for more people. We're looking for the right kind of people. Yeah. And, um, and that's what we found because we've had to limit things to our best customers, our friends of Linden. They've been incredibly supportive of us. And we've realized that um, we can give them much better service. We can talk to them. We can talk about the wines, have better interaction. That's what we're looking for. Uh -huh. So in fact, we will be reducing when we're open, reducing the amount of flow into here. Even if we could handle more, we don't necessarily want to because then we can really focus on the people that are here. And for us, a lot of it's about education. Yeah. And if you've got crowds of people and you know they're, they're kind of talking to each other, then uh, why bother? So um, I've found this has been incredibly good. Well, let's talk about that, education. And by first talking about you, give us, tell me a little bit about your background. I understand you're from Ohio, is that correct? That's the easiest place for me to say I'm from, yes. Okay. Uh, my dad was an engineer and uh, the family moved around a lot, mm -hmm. but he was an engineer for Procter & Gamble and their headquarters are in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So I came back to Cincinnati. I graduated from high school there. I went to school mostly in um, Miami University in Ohio. So I'm from Ohio, yes. And you started your winemaking journey there. Yes, um, up at uh, on Lake Erie at Chalet Debonet um, in the vintage uh, 1980. I started mm -hmm. there. What grapes are they growing in Ohio, like on the lakes there? Well, you got to realize this was now 40 years ago, yeah. so I can tell you what they were growing 40 years ago. Okay. But but uh, no, back then it was a it was. I learned the nuts and bolts there. I didn't learn about fine winemaking. Sure. Um, I learned about driving a tractor and racking barrels and setting up bottling lines and pruning, but, but the basics, and I loved that, it was perfect for me. I was what we call a cellar rat, mm -hmm. and a cellar rat is somebody that does all the grunt work, mm -hmm. and um, that was perfect. I was young, I, I didn't know anything, and so I did the grunt work and I enjoyed it. Um, at that time, there were still mostly Labruscas, Concord, Niagara, Catawba, um, and then there were some... Uh, Hybrids, uh, Saval, Vidal, Chancellor, uh, Deshonac, I still remember even the numbers, uh, Chancellor 7053, and no, so uh, there were no vinifera. Yeah. Um, and uh, now it's changed a lot. Yeah, well, I was quite surprised. Uh, my brother-in-law is from Cincinnati, and my sister, and he now live in Mason, outside of Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and I had no idea that they made any type of wine regardless of quality in that state at all. So it was, uh, when I was doing some reading on you, I, I found that very, to be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, my, um, I, I wouldn't go as far to call him a mentor, but somebody who really showed me um, the possibilities. He just passed away last month is Arnie Esther, who uh, started Marco Vineyard uh, back in the 70s. And I, I touched base with him on occasion, and he was growing Chardonnay and Riesling, mm -hmm. um, and he was making really good wines. It was just down the road, so I thought, well, this is, this is possible. Mm -hmm. And that's all you need to know is it's possible. So now let's go to Virginia. You know, what brought you here, and um, why did it attract you? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I knew I couldn't stay in Ohio uh, because the kind of wine I wanted to make was, in fact, um, more of the style that Arnie Esther was making. And there wasn't, he was struggling for a market. Um, Ohio wasn't drinking fine Chardonnays or Reds or anything like that. Um, 
especially dry wines. So I knew I needed to move closer to the market and I ended up going to, uh, there, I got two job offers. One was in Oregon and one was in Virginia. And the one in Virginia um, was more exciting to me because it, first of all, it was a new unproven region, which was very attractive. Uh, and the other was that it was involved starting a winery from scratch and expanding vineyards. And to me, that was like, what an opportunity. So, so what year was that? That was uh, 1981. Okay. So you come to Virginia, accepted that offer, and you worked uh, in a, where was this vineyard located? In, uh, it's in about 20 miles west of here in Middletown, not mm -hmm. Middleburg, but Middletown, Middletown yeah. Ohio, or um, <laughs> Virginia. Yes. So what kind of uh, wine were they producing? Well, we started out producing just about a little bit of everything uh, because the vineyard was planted in all kinds of different varieties. Yeah. Um, and so we made uh, everything from some Cabernet Sauvignon to Saval. He had some Alagote, which I really would love to get my hands on now. It's, it's long gone. Yeah. Um, along with, uh, there was a, a number of hybrids like Baco Noir and even wow. some, uh, he even had some Concord that we made into wine. So, wow. I mean, it was just... And that's the way Virginia was back then. Everybody was just throwing in anything in the ground to see what stuck. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I was very excited to come here and speak to you. There are a couple of names that come up whenever I speak to winemakers that I, you know, I really like what they're doing. And uh, usually those are the ones that start when they own the winery or they're, you know, they have an interest in the winery. Those are the ones who start in the vineyard rather than the venue. You know, they're those who build the venue and then they say, well, let's have a, you know, do whatever, have weddings here and, and plant vines. These people really know how to, how to make wine. And most, all of them, when I talk to them, they look, they talk about, they mention your name and um, Lucy Morton, but they mention yours in particular. You are pretty much a mentor to many of the great winemakers here in this area. So tell me about how your process was, well, first, you, when did you open this place? Uh, our first vintage was 1987, okay. uh, opened our doors in 1988. Okay. And this is the hard scrabble? Yeah, uh, yeah, all the vines around the winery that you can see are hard scrabble. Okay. And your first crop of grapes, what uh, varieties were they? Uh, we had Chardonnay, and those vines are still producing today. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, which we blended. Um, Save All and Vidal. I think that's it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. And is there any particular reason you made those choices? Yeah, I, I'd had experience with all of those, and I knew there were possibilities. So um, I, I planted Save All and Vidal as sort of a way of, of keeping uh, things safe because we still weren't sure how the vinifera would do, especially with the winters. Mm -hmm. Winters were a lot colder then. Um, so that was the reason for the mix. Mm. And that was 87, your first vintage. First vintage, yeah, I planted in 85. 85. Listeners to this show will know, and I'm going to, actually apropos, I tell this story way too often. But uh, I went to school in Georgia, at Georgia Tech, uh, in the early 80s. And when I came back on the summer, during the summers, there was a, an article in the style section of the Washington Post. They talked about the Virginia Wine Tour, Virginia wineries or whatever, and probably at that time, you would know specifically mid-80s, was about maybe 10, 8 or 10, 
So. Yeah, there, that's right when we started the first sort of increase. When, yeah. when I came to Virginia, to, it was to start the eighth winery. Okay. So, uh, make a long story short, I didn't even know they were making wine in Virginia, even though my family is from Virginia, Roanoke area of that, Lynchburg. And uh, so I would ask my friends, I said, did you know they made wine in Virginia? Did you go to this thing? I read about in the post and they said, oh yeah. And I was like, well really, well how's the wine? And most of them said, pretty bad, <laughs> you know, pretty terrible. And I wasn't a wine drinker back then and I, I didn't come into wine until like, you know, way after the millennium. And uh, the last 10 years, say. And I discovered this Virginia that is creating some, or creating some very fine, nice, wines and uh in large part i think it's it, you and some of your colleagues but particularly you had a lot to do with that and and from what i understand learning the terroir and learning the the what can be made here mm -hmm. how was that process tell me a little bit about the learning curve well you have to understand that that was it's the farming aspect that brought me into this industry and it's what's keeping me going strong mm. Um, I, as you drove up, I was pruning, and I, I was looking for uh, pruning a place where I could see a car come up, and mm -hmm. I chase out, that, and that's what I love to do. Mm -hmm. So, I fell in love with farming uh, actually when I was uh, going to school in uh, Miami University of Ohio, um, uh, just part-time work, and I've, I, I loved. I re still remember making hay. It was one of the best. Best days of my life. It was hot and gross and delicious with the <laughs> cheap beer and you know that's that's the sort of thing I remember. So I, I did spend a lot of time in Europe uh, studying and living, and so that's where I got the, the the whole idea of wine as an agricultural product. Where in Europe? Um, I was in Luxembourg as a student, mm. and um, then I was also at, in a high school. I was in England, which of course at that time didn't make wine. But uh, I, you still learned about that connection. Um, and then I was in Peace Corps in, um, in uh, Congo, and that's where I taught agriculture. No wine again, but um, just learning the, the farming aspect. What were you uh, planting and farming in, in the Peace Corps? Was it uh, the, the, the crops that really piqued my interest were coffee and cocoa, chocolate, um, because they were perennial crops. Mm -hmm. and, I, I learned more about uh, how to take care of them through the season and make sure the trees stayed healthy. and um, So that's something I really enjoyed. So even though you weren't planting grapes, could you take some of a lot of that oh, sure. skill that you learned from oh, sure. planting farming, coffee? If you, under, if you have good farming knowledge, um, you can translate that pretty easily to most crops. The, um, uh, everything from soils to vigor to balance to... Um, taking care of young plants until they're strong enough to start producing. It's yeah. My grandfather was a farmer. I didn't get that gene. My mother has a great green thumb because uh, she used to work the fields with my, my grandfather. So I have a, a very uh, a great respect for those who have the skill and the patience to be good in the field and good farmers. You know, I'm told that you, it's, you can't make good wine out of bad grapes. You know, now you, you look like you may not agree with that. Well, no, it, it's, it's just so obvious that I, I can't even understand why people even say that. I mean, yeah, well, I, you know. I, I, that sort of gets to who we are. Right. And what, I, what, what we do is just classical European, mm -hmm. is that 
the people who work here, we farm the grapes. We all farm the grapes. And we understand that that is the most important thing. And if we can get it all right, which isn't easy, it's not just about what you do in a season, but the plant, where you plant, how you plant, what varieties you plant and what soil. And if you get all that right, um, and then manage the, the vines correctly, you're in good shape. Well, in that respect, I think that's why Virginia is, we are so lucky to have you, because you, that's the way you think, so much so that you can't relate to that statement. Because yeah. I think there are a lot of, unfortunately, there's some folks sure. who can relate to the statement. It makes sense to them. It makes yeah. no sense to you. Because well, to, to generalize, there's um, what the, Europe, the French say, there's a, a vin de terroir, which is a wine of, of place, and there's a vin d'effort, which is a wine of effort. And we do just terroir. And effort means that you do do a lot of work in the cellar. Um, that's where the effort is. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do that. We don't want to do that. We don't even know how to do that. Um, so we just find that it, when we get everything right, we bring in balanced grapes, and there's not much you need to do at all. You just make sure. Uh, again, to use a, the French term, ne chatez pas, don't mess it up. You know, just don't make any mistakes and let yeah. the wine just sort of happen. Now, you have three vineyards, is it? Three vineyards, yeah. Uh, at what point when, now, that wasn't always the case. I'm assuming the hard scrabble vineyard is the... No, this, uh, we've always had hard scrabble. We didn't call it hard scrabble until um, 10 years out. And when mm. we started working with other vineyards and realized that we needed to give it a name. Right. Um, but yeah, there's Avenius, which uh, is just a mile up the ridge. And uh, Shari Avenius planted it in 1996 with my supervision, we'll say. Mm. And uh, she's been working here since 1990 mm. um, as our manager. So she wanted to have uh, a, a small vineyard that she could sort of express herself in. Um, and it's five acres and those vines, it's been a great learning curve to see how those vines have really taken off with some age. And we'll be right back. This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by Visit Loudoun, the tourist office for D.C.'s wine country. Visit Loudoun invites you to D.C.'s wine country a mere 30 miles from the nation's capital. Loudoun is the Napa Valley of the Mid-Atlantic. Home to more than 40 wineries, Loudoun's vineyards provide views of everything from the lush rolling hills of the Virginia countryside to the soaring slopes of the Blue Ridge Mountains. With fire pits, outdoor patios, and acres of open land perfect for vineyard picnics, Loudoun's wineries are ready to welcome you at any time of year to enjoy award-winning Viognier, Cab Franc, Merlot, Norton, and Bordeaux blends. My favorite. There's more than just drinking wine when you come to visit DC's wine country. Take part in unique experiences such as vineyard hikes paired with personal tasting kits, sangria making classes, and special wine pairing dinners. And if you enjoy the day, listen, why not stay longer? Dine in superb restaurants or check into one of the boutique B&Bs or luxury resorts and make a weekend of it. Joan and I have, and we've had a ball. To start planning your trip to DC's wine country, check out visitloudon.org. That's V-I-S-I-T-L-O-U-D-O-U-N.org. And now back to the show. So you have these three vineyards to make these single vineyard wines. Tell me about how different they are, because most of them, they're pretty close together mm -hmm. as the crow flies, as they say. But I would imagine since you, you decided that you're not going to blend these grapes, 
there's something about these particular vineyards that have a different character to them. Can you kind of... Sure, and the whole reason why we do the single vineyard wines is to learn what those characters are. So we didn't start out saying, oh, this will produce this kind of wine and this will sure. produce that kind of wine. It gets down to the whole, um, to me, what, what really centered me in Virginia is that it was a, an opportunity to discover virgin terroir. I mean, no, nothing around here had been planted. Nobody knew what the possibilities were. And how many times can a person in their career do that? So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just is attacking him again. I found that um, it, it's that with that opportunity, I couldn't squander it by just blending the different terroirs. I had to understand each one. Right. And some years we do blend, or because we didn't feel that the um, concentration or the expression was there. Mm -hmm. But most years we don't. Most years we bottle separately. And by bottling separately, then we can figure out how they age and mm -hmm. how they express themselves when they age. I'm sure you've been told this, but uh, in, I didn't start drinking wine seriously until like about 2010. And uh, I, you know, then I started to investigate uh, Virginia wine. Now there are some vineyards in Maryland that I, I like, and I, I'm gonna get to that soon with you. Um, but I didn't really know where to go, I would just hit one, hit the other one. And I was watching this show, Animal. Now you know where I'm going oh, with yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy, gourmet cook, beautiful, beautiful tables. Unfortunately, the protein on the table, you may not want to eat. But he mentioned Virginia wine and he had a late harvest Vidal from Linden yep. on there. And you know, when I investigated some of the other wines, it just spoke highly to me. I, I'm, embarrassed I'm telling you about because it's a television show. But I was like, wow, well, for the makers of this show to choose this wine, of all the wines of Virginia, for this particular character, it must be something special. And uh, so I've had, some, not that, that was the 2010, I think, no, he had, I forgot, 20, 20, 2008, maybe vintage or something yeah, like that. I don't know. I don't know. But um, I had, uh, some, and I think it might have been a 2012 or something like that, but it was really good. And um, so explain to me about late harvest. What, why, what makes it a late harvest? Well, uh, the, the inspiration again came from Europe with doing so many beautiful wines, the wines I really adored, the Tokais, the um, Bouzeron, the, um, uh, or not Bouzeron, uh, Bouzeron, no, I'm, I'm blanking out, but uh, Sauterne. Mm -hmm. um, I just loved that those wines, especially when they age. So I thought we had potential to do that. We started with Vidal, um, and we found they, they did beautifully because they really um, the grapes hung nicely through um, November, where we got good concentration and good flavor profiles. And then since then, I've done um, also the Petit Massin, um, which is what, in Jurançon, which is where it's from, that's what they do with Petit Mansang. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they have great acidity, great exotic flavors. You, you can get um, extremely high sugars, and that's what those wines demand. So what do you, th I know that you have done, and just me reading about you and listening to a few of the other media uh, things that you've done, you do a lot of experience. I don't want to say a lot, maybe. You do some experimentation with what could grow here. Now that you've gotten to know the land so well, you probably know it better than any other grape grower in this state. What, um, 
Is there anything that you're just now in your 40 years in this business discovering that, hey, maybe we can try this here now? Well, what, uh, I'm interested in just fine-tuning what we already have. I, okay. I spent, um, especially the last 15 years, replanting a lot of vineyards based on my knowledge uh -huh. and um, getting it, um, we'll call it right. I mean, I'll never get it right, but better. Right. So, I, and that's rewarding. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's paying off really well. The wine quality has really just taken off. It's been quite, quite remarkable. Yeah. And, and it will continue to do so as the vines get older and we learn how to manage them even better. So that's what my focus is. However, I realize also with climate change that um, it might not stay that way. And we, we need to start exploring other varieties. And, but I know it's going to be a long, long, commercially I'm not going to do that, but experimentationally we will, and we have. We're planting other varieties that we feel have a possibility of um, ripening later in the season because our ripening continues to be earlier. It's taking us out sometimes at the sweet spot. And uh, so ripening later and um, rot resistance because we're getting more rain and harvest, tropical storms. Uh, the grapes, if the skins aren't uh, thick enough, they can't handle that. So, um, so we've we've chosen grapes based on that. We're planting them, um, and we'll just you know wait 10, 15 years, see how they do. I saw uh, something on, and I want to say it was Vice News, uh, but they were talking about the Bordeaux and the what they're experiencing because of climate change, and they were uh, focusing particularly on Merlot. Apparently, the Merlot yeah. grapes are not being aren't being, uh, they're not being able to grow them anymore with the conditions that they have. So they've gone to a hybrid, uh, or some, some growers have gone to a hybrid uh, that seems to do better. Uh, do you see that as, uh, what kind of solution is that for you? I mean, you seem like a very much a purist, which I really respect. Would that be something that you would possibly go to, or? Well, first of all, that's, uh, what you said is a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, Merlot is still by far the most widely planted grape in Bordeaux. Okay. And the hybrids that they're allowing, uh, well, they're not all hybrids, but they're, they're allowing alternate grape varieties, but they're planted just like we're doing experimentally. Okay. Taking over. Merlot actually still grows well in Bordeaux. It's just the wine can be overblown and too ripe and too alcoholic, so mm -hmm. they're, they're losing their finesse. Um, as far as what, and, and so that's about what we're the same what we're doing. For the rest of my life, I, it would, I'd be surprised if we saw major replantings to new varieties here at Hardscrabble. Now, after I'm gone, the next generation, I would be surprised if there wasn't a major replanting of new varieties. Because by that time, we'll have learned what varieties are doing well both in the vineyard and in the cellar, and also um, what climate change is going to bring and how, how awful it's going to be. I live in Maryland, and I mentioned that I've, uh, I've gone to more vineyards, well, there are more vineyards in the state of Virginia, but I've personally been to more vineyards in Virginia than I've been in Maryland. I think I was fortunate enough to happen upon what I believe is one of the best winemakers in our vineyards in Maryland, in Black Ankle. I uh, had Melissa Schulte on the show the other day, and she spoke very highly of you, and she wanted me to tell you hello. Ah. And, uh, and I know that Ed and Sarah, well, according to Melissa, came to see you when they were oh, looking yeah. for their yeah. land. We visited back and forth a lot. I can't remember how long ago that, whenever they were mm -hmm. starting, even before they were starting, we were 
tasting together and talking about? Well, drive, I have to say, driving up here, beautiful ride, but this last leg when you're actually coming into, into hard travel reminded me a lot of the drive mm -hmm. the black ankle and i was like yeah i could see that ed and sarah definitely listened to jim when they were looking for their plot of land a lot of the wine wine culture in maryland uh, from way back was fruit wine sweet wines um, a lot of the winemakers are, are or a number of the winemakers now are trying to ch change that and make more drier wines just like here in virginia but it seems as though virginia has a just a big head start mm -hmm. on the state of maryland and I know that historically, you know, I guess if you're going to go to Jefferson and all that, historically, that's just the way it was chronologically. But it seems that my state is slower to change mm -hmm. their standard of quality than Virginia has. Do you know the reason for that? Or do you have any guesses? Or is it just... Yeah, it's a, it's a cultural, political reason historically, and not that going back that far. I can go back 40 years. Okay. And um, I can tell you that... When I came to the state, what kept me in the state was that Virginia was behind the industry like 100% right away. I was pretty amazed because I saw Virginia sort of a southern state and Baptists and you know, teetotalers, but wow, Virginia got behind it. And the, um, they gave the wineries um, some zoning breaks to set up in an agricultural area. Uh, they, they gave Virginia Tech lots of... Uh, of um, money for uh, start hiring people and do research. The state got behind us in a marketing way. I mean, Maryland didn't do that. Yeah. And we're talking the 80s. That Maryland was like, no, it's alcohol. We don't want it. And we're not going to help you. We're going to make it difficult. You can't open a tasting room. You can't do this. You can't do that. So there was, I mean, they had their hands tied. Yeah. Maryland's now caught up, but they lost a couple decades in yeah. the meantime. So. That's why they're lagging a couple decades behind. Yeah. They will catch up. It has nothing to do with terroir. Yeah. There's some great terroir. You mentioned Black Ankle. Those soils are amazing. Oh. I've never seen anything like that. And, and you know that whole area, they can produce great wine, and they are. Um, yeah. It's just that it's going, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spoken to some folks from Visit Loudoun uh, there, too. And I, and I mentioned that I noticed that Virginia um, on the state level and also on some of the county levels, have really supports their wine culture, which Maryland has just it's been lacking, but we're getting there. They support the craft, you know, the craft brewing mm -hmm. industry uh, is really kind of full steam ahead there, more so than the wine, but it's a lot easier to get into making beer than making wine. So when I go out, it used to be, and I'll, this is another Maryland, Virginia wine thing, when I go out and I say, here's a go-to a party, say, here's a Virginia wine, and still there's some hesitance from folks. I don't even like to tell them I'm bringing Maryland, <laughs> Maryland wine. They're just a guest. So I just pour it, usually. And uh, they get great reception with what I've chosen to bring. What do you think needs to be done to, for Virginia to even move to the next level as far as acceptance in the, in the, in the wider called range not linden necessarily i understand you yeah but no it's it, it, it's all about planting the right sites um most of the sites that have been planted thus far have been mediocre at best hmm. um and they've been planted for reasons that didn't have anything to do with viticulture potential they were just like we own the land or it's a good place near the highway for weddings or whatever now that's starting to shift slowly but it is shifting yeah. 
we have more we have some soil consultants now people understand uh, enough uh, you know people come if people are interested in getting into this business they visit the usual addresses of people that are doing good work and they hear the same thing it's all about the site and the soil and you better get expert help and that's your most important decision mm -hmm. and so those people are starting to come in now they're starting to to plant and that's what's going to start elevating it and believe me after you've put that much due diligence and time and money into the site you're not going to mess it up by making wedding wines you're going to be um, focused on making high-end wines if you, you know when i hear people describe uh virginia wine uh they'll refer to it as a bordeaux you know we're that some of the terroir and the climate is much like the bordeaux so they'll they'll point to france and they'll say we're like French wines, this type of thing. However, um, California has been able to uh, develop a, uh, a style or a recognition for, like this is a California cab, and you kind of have to know what you're talking about. Um, what, is, what is Virginia's style or Virginia's character of a Virginia wine where you don't have to compare it to something else? That's a, that's a difficult question on many levels. First of all, Virginia is a political entity, just like France is a political entity. So what's France's style? Is it Alsatian Riesling or okay. is it Chateauneuf de Pop? I mean, you know, so. Correct, understood. You, you get my point. Yeah. Um, second of all, um, I think that, the, that because we have rain and because we have heat, that right away kind of narrows down a lot of um, what we can do and what we can't do. Um, so stylistically, I, I agree, we are very much European, but you know, we're, we're not Mediterranean European and we're not cool climate Mediterranean like Germany. We're right. kind of right in that middle, more like uh, the southwest of France, where they are more Atlantic influenced with some heat. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're, why we're focused a lot on that stylistically and with grape varieties, but not exclusively. Mm. I heard you in a conversation say that you um, were very interested in, this was something, a conversation you had maybe a year ago, about tea. You thought, now have you done any homework on that yet? Or I have to admit, not really. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by any um, flavor that comes from the earth, mm. that flavor differences. Um, so that's where I, I, I did talk about tea. I haven't, you need somebody that knows what they're doing, sure. and especially with COVID now, um, I'm afraid that we're at a point where I can't go out and attend tea tastings and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So, um, and same with like cheese, you know, the terroir of cheese. Yeah. Same, same idea, but, yeah. um, so I, I explore it. Olive oil is another thing I'm really fascinated by. So yeah. all those, those sort of things, chocolates. I was, I was about to ask you about that because yeah. you said you had some uh, experience planting chocolate. Yeah. So uh, do you have a palette for chocolate? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just, I mean, you got to understand that I, we were growing chocolate, and making, uh, but we weren't making chocolate. That was, All the chocolate was grown was exported to uh, Europe right. where they make the chocolate. Yeah. Wow. If you could go back uh, and tell yourself in 1980 something that you wish you knew then, that you know now through all your experience, uh, what would that be? Soil-vine relationship. I understand it now. I understand the concept now, but I didn't then. And it took me almost 20 years 
to start grasping that importance. That's what I wish I would have known. If somebody was interested in getting into, and I'm not speaking about myself, I'm not asking for a friend, <laughs> but if somebody was really interested in becoming a, uh, a winemaker, growing grapes for wine, uh, what would be your advice to them? And when do you think that the average person, I'm not talking about a prodigy, the an average person, how long does it take to really come into your own in those things? Is that a fair question? That might not be a fair question. Yeah, there's, you can't put a time on because okay. it's a constant learning, especially when, when we're talking about a, a new emerging region. It's, you know, yeah. I, my whole, entire life, I feel like, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to know so much more yeah. than I know now. Yeah. And so when I, when I have some of the young people that are, have been working for me and they, the light bulbs go off for them early in their life, in their career, then I know, you know, we're, we're going to do some great things. Right. So, uh, you know, you, you almost have to, you can't do what I did, which was wing it and learn on your own. I mean, you can, but it's, the learning curve is so long. Yeah. And now there's opportunity to, to learn much faster. So, and that's in a way what I want to do is set the stage for the next generation. Yeah. Well, I think you've done an excellent job for, of doing that. Oh, it's been a great trip. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love it. But I'm saying it can, the learning curve can be much faster now than it was for me. Yeah, yeah. Are there any uh, regions of Virginia, and I'm, I'm speaking of the political the borders, but the political state, are there any regions here that you think uh, haven't been explored uh, well or, or? Sure, there's, I mean, most of it. <laughs> um, the, you go down to southwest Virginia, there's a Valhalla Vineyard. I remember visiting their vineyard site 20 some years ago, and oh, I mean, even even more interesting soils than Black Ankle. I couldn't believe it. This old peach orchard that they'd planted, it was beautiful, beautiful soils. And then in the Shenandoah Valley, especially the western part of the valley near West Virginia, incredible opportunities there. Are there uh, uh, pots of land that uh, are, the soil is left, like I know this used to be uh, an orchard, is that correct? That's apple, correct. Apple yeah. orchard? Yeah. And you said that place was a peach orchard? Yeah. Um, are there any uh, crops that lend themselves to be suited for wine, for, for vines, like if, if uh, uh, like a cornfield, well, cornfield's usually flat, it's probably yeah. not good. Cornfield would not be good. <laughs> be no. good. If but, corn uh, does well, you don't want to plant vines there. <laughs> Actually, it's peaches. Uh, apples, yeah. apples to some degree, but apples are more resilient than peaches. Mm -hmm. You can grow apples in places that are um, sort of borderline for grapes. But in order to have a successful peach orchard, um, that's going to be a really good site for grapes. Oh, wow. That's good to know. <laughs> but you still have to figure out a lot as far as what varieties of grapes might do well, depending on the soil. But the site itself already lends itself to, yeah. to great possibilities. Yeah. You've mentioned, and, I, and I, I don't believe I've really tapped into it much. Explain to us about the, the, the culture here at Linden. I mean, what sets you apart from the others or what is it that you were really trying to or what have you made here you're not trying anymore what have you made here well I think again I, I, I hate to keep repeating myself but it's about the vineyard for mm -hmm. example we have there's um, five of us that are including myself that are in production mm -hmm. and we all do everything I mean we all work the vineyard we all work in the, the cellar we all work crush 
we're all full-time, we've all been here um, 10, 20, in some cases 30 years. So um, that, that's the culture. And we know the vineyard, we know what to do, we're tweaking, we're experimenting. Um, and then as far as the winemaking goes, it's, it's, um, we, we just learn to leave it alone. And we don't freak out if uh, the, maybe the fermentation's not doing exactly what we want. We kind of let it find itself and we trust the wines. Um, and we're, finding, we're also not in a hurry, meaning um, we found that our wines do age really well. And uh, we've, we're now bottling much later, we're releasing much later, the wines are showing much better. So we don't have that constraint of cash flow. Um, not that it wouldn't be bad, but I've realized that if you're, if you're pushing the wines, you know, the process starts from planting the vineyard and it ends up when somebody pulls that cork. Mm. And if they're pulling the cork too early or you're encouraging that, then you've lost all that work because the wine's not showing that well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, I actually wrote a list, I'm, I, I want to get a couple of bottles, three bottles from you before I leave. I want to get more, but I'm <laughs> just going to get three uh, today. On some of your uh, bottles uh, that are, say, your, your better reds, blends, I know you wouldn't release them if you couldn't drink them then, but when, when would you recommend, how long would you recommend holding it before opening it, or do you? Well, that's the beauty of wine is that it shows differently at different yeah. times. Um, I think that now our wines, our red wines seem to be showing better younger and then continuing to show well. And that's sort of the, the idea. Um, we wait usually three plus years for release in any of the reds. Um, and that's when they usually gather themselves up. They're not disjointed. They're not closed and they're showing their first level of drinkability, which is more fruit, more you know, firm tannins, um, that go really well with you know, basic red meats. And then after that, you start getting more integration, more complexity um, over time. Um, you know, our, our 2009, 2010, which were great vintages, those are showing really well now, but I think they'll be better even if we hold on a little bit more. Mm. I, I noticed, unless I missed it, uh, I didn't see any Tanah in your uh, offerings. Do you, have you ever planted any, or do you no. even have an interest in doing so? No, it's not that I don't have an interest. It's just that sometimes I found that we were we've been doing too much, too many grape varieties, too many styles, mm. and it's harder than to focus on what you feel you do best. So I've kind of put a moratorium on any more varieties uh, to plant except for the experimental vineyard, where we're only planting a handful of vines, and that's to learn not to make wine from. Well, I've really kind of neglected my uh, appreciation of white wines. I get the, I think you made a statement, I don't want to misquote you, but I do think you have a, a very warm place in your heart for, for white wine, am I correct in saying that? Yes, I would say the whole reason I came to this site was for Chardonnay. Mm. Yeah, well, so uh, you've, you've uh, a, a, a series of events culminating with uh, listening to you uh, has made me want to really give it another chance. I don't dislike white wine. I just always gravitate toward reds. And uh, I, I guess only because I guess my first wine that I really enjoyed was something I wouldn't enjoy now. It's like a real big, bold California cab. I won't turn it down, trust me. <laughs> I'll take it. But um, now that stronger wine doesn't uh, 
attracted me anymore as much. You know? that's, that's actually typical, and it's also what, what I've gone through, too. Like I, I went through my Zinfandel and California Cab and Chateauneuf de Pop stage, and not that I don't still drink those wines. I, I'm more in, into finesse and, and restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, with whites, I mean, the, the, um, that's what I like about Chardonnay because it it, texturally it, it can have some weight to it. And instead of tannins, you have acidity. And if the acidity is of, of um, high quality, you can have that same sort of organoleptic pleasure of uh, Chardonnay as you can with um, red wines. Yeah, that's Milton chewing on one of your logs. Yes. <laughs> there. Whittle them down for some kindling. Oh, jeez. Okay, um, well, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, this is, this, the purpose of this podcast is to, uh, for my own edification, and also to promote the craft beverage industry in the DMV, you know, in, the, in this area. In this case, we're talking about wine. And um, you strike me as, 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 as a craftsman, as an artist. So what I'm going to ask you to do now might not come naturally <laughs> to you, but... You know, I, I've asked my guests in the past, you know, if there are any misconceptions about Virginia wine that you'd like to clear up before we leave, anything you want to say. But if you could make a case for Virginia wine, if you will, for those people who may be listening who have never tasted a Virginia wine before and would never think that a quality wine could come out of this region, uh, what would you, is there anything you would say to them? Well, I think when I want to explore a new region or a new grape, um, the natural tendency is just to buy whatever you see on the shelf and just start popping the cork, and that, that's not a bad way. But just like with everything in life, if you do your due diligence and you read a little bit and find out a little bit about who's really doing um, honest work and good work, um, then I think you can learn a lot more and get a better idea. So that's what I would say. Is do your homework. Do your homework. And, and that's, I know that there's, a, there's almost too much information out there now. Yeah, that's but, true. So you have to kind of narrow it down as best you can. Yeah. And uh, I always say that, um, you know, good neighborhood wine shops are, are you know, a great place to start because they, they kind of know what the deal is and they can listen to you and find out what your interest is. So that's, that's a good place. And of course, restaurants, when they open up again, um, are, are fa- fabulous because then you can just try a glass of something and understand it. The, the, hopefully the sommelier is going to have some good background information. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jim Law, I want to thank you for taking time to, to be on the sure. show. It's been, been an honor to speak with you. I, I'm glad that you tolerated Milton here. Uh, I would... Well, I, hope I would have a more relaxed and, and thorough interview with you if I didn't have to worry about this terror, well, uh, tearing up the sunroom. I think but, that uh, we're, we're used to dogs. We have uh, almost all the dogs here are rescues that have, mm-hmm. uh, have unique personalities. So yeah. I'm kind of used to dogs running around. and um, So that, that's fine. I just hope it, uh, audio-wise it worked out okay. Oh, well, we'll see. I'm sure we got a few wines and, and some crunches in the background, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll work out fine. So thanks. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, drinking some of your wine. I look forward to visiting. Let me, let me finish here. You've now lent, some, lent me a little bit more, at least from myself, credibility to being somebody who does a wine, Virginia wine podcast, because when I tell people what I do, 
inevitably, those in the know will say, oh, have you spoken to Jim Law? <laughs> or, oh, have you gone to Linden? And I have to hang my head and say no. And um, now I'll be able to say yes. Well, good. Well, I appreciate it. No, I, you know, my I'm not I'm not a marketing person, so and um, I don't do all the whatever Twitter and Facebook and all that. So um, this is a way of us getting the message out too, where I don't have to do any work. I just have to sit here and and talk for an hour. So yeah. Well, I think you're a prime example of uh, if they, if you know we build it, they will come. I mean this. This is uh, the quality of your work has brought people to where you are. And, and uh, so, and like I said, it's been an honor to be here. And thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I really had a fantastic time speaking with Jim Law at Linden Vineyards. If you live near the DMV or you're planning a trip to the Commonwealth of Virginia, Please visit Linden Vineyards. It'll be well worth your while, and please let them know that you heard about it on this show. You will thank me. Trust me. I'd like to thank Jim Law for taking time out of his busy schedule to be a guest on my show. Jim, you always have an open invitation to come and talk Virginia wine. Always. <laughs> I would like to ask you if you to please subscribe to the pod if you've not already done so. I will introduce you to some of the best folks in the DMV and the surrounding area, and that is a promise, folks like Jim Law. Please, tell your friends about us, have them tune in, they'll thank you, I'll thank you, and we'll all be happy. Listen, I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. And if you agree with that, and I think that's the fact, please share the pod. If it grows, we can get the word out more about craft beverages, especially wine, craft beer, and distilled spirits in the DMV, and that'll be a good thing. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media you could be listening to right now besides me. You could be binging anything. The Queen's Gambit's pretty good, but you could be binging something worthless. So I appreciate you spending time listening to me and that's why i work so hard to bring you the content that i do i truly appreciate your time investment in me thank you for listening please rate our podcast give me five stars i would appreciate it and remember always have a designated driver so i will be able to see you next time he's vicata you have been listening to barrel tasting with howard fletcher part of the fletcher podcast group you can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Let's find out what these, what these uh, vineyards produce. Excuse me, i got a puppy licking my yeah, face here. Yeah, come on, Melton. <laughs> hey, come on. Come on. Um, normally that'd be fine, but it's sort of hard to talk and <laughs> get your face licked. Yeah. Um, somehow I lost my train of thought.